Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello, this is Austin Philbin, and welcome to today's podcast, Safe Passage, How to Move Your Business Optimally and Compliantly. I am joined by a special guest and friend, Brian Hamburger, founder and managing member of the Hamburger Law Firm as well as president and CEO of Market Council. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, Austin. So before we got taping, we were talking a little bit about uh, television and a show that we both like. Uh, Since I grew up in Massachusetts, huge fan of Ray Donovan. And you created a little bit of a parallel between that television show and what it is that you and your firm does, I think it would be helpful just as a start to, to explain that a little bit. Yeah, so that, um, as long as you don't make me do the Ray Donovan accent, Austin, uh, but really it is, uh, it is a pleasure to be here, and I, I thanks uh, so much for having me. You know, the job we do that could be compared to anything on Ray Donovan uh, uh, probably can, um, um, can be best viewed as the contingency plan. So when all else fails, right, when we, when we plan for a transition or when we're running a regulatory compliance program or when we're helping them with, run their operations, when all else fails and something doesn't go well, uh, we are called in to fix uh, the problems. Um, and so uh, between the fight club that they run and Ray Donovan <laughs> seems to always have this perfectly pressed suit, right? That's amazing, by the way. I got to figure out how he does that. Um, I mean, it's all this guy, the fold, this guy's getting in fights. This guy is like he's got 20-hour days, 48-hour uh, days sometimes. But uh, but that's what we're called to do, right? We're called to resolve problems when all the stopgaps are put in place and the precautions are put in place and things still don't go as anticipated. Um, we uh, I think we've developed a reputation over the years of being able to rapidly resolve issues and ensure that we can mitigate them uh, so that they are not changing the game for the advisor. Right. I remember when I was at Smith Barney and we had a very large advisor that had left in our geography and had gone and started his own RIA. And this was, gosh, more than 10 years ago. And it was a big surprise to the management of the region. It was also a big surprise to candidly a lot of us because many, most people weren't yet moving to independence. And so I get into a discussion with an executive and I said, you know, why wouldn't someone do that? And his answer, the executive's answer to me was because imagine if something were to happen from a client complaint standpoint and that individual had to come up with funds to pay an attorney or to defend themselves like at Smith, Barney and Citigroup, you have this massive institution behind you. When you're an independent, you don't. And so, obviously, fast forward to today, first of all, I think that was not true at the at the point in time in which it was said. But talk a little bit about if people are listening to this and wondering, 
what happens if something goes wrong as an independent advisor, both from a compliance perspective and just the way in which the process flows forward? Because maybe people don't have an understanding about that. Yeah, I'm happy to. But the, the first thing I want to do is let's take a look at the statement that uh, uh, that was shared with you at the other time, sure. which is you have this large, giant institution behind you, right? There should be some ellipses after that, right? Unless you don't, right? <laughs> right. So you also could have this large, giant institution opposed to you right? Uh, or looking out for their own interests and throwing you under the bus. Um, so that large, giant financial global institution is right. not always on your side and is not always backing you up uh, and is not always making um, decisions that are in the advisor's best interest. They may, they may settle a case, for example – when the advisor is completely right, even if it means disclosures on the advisor's uh, U4 and leave right. the advisor on their own if they want to try to take it any, uh, take it any further or prevent them from doing so. Um, it's, it's actually quite simple. Right now, uh, if in the very unlikely event that an advisor is sued by their clients, which is what I think is the situation you're sure. referring to, uh, in the un- unlikely event that that happens, well, it's actually pretty straightforward. The advisor has insurance, uh, typically called errors and omissions insurance, and that insurance will carry with it certain deductibles and limitations based on on what policy they put in place. Uh, And it it may cover uh, defense and legal counsel. It may cover eventual uh, damages, uh, but it's very similar. You have a large insurance company. The difference is that the advisor is the customer of the insurance company. The right. advisor is the one who dictates the decisions as to whether they settle or whether they uh, proceed with uh, with the dispute. The reason that I said that it's in um, the unlikely event that there's a dispute is keep in mind that as an investment advisor, you're generally more aligned with the interests of your clients, right? You're not selling something to your clients in that capacity. And so as a result, it's far less likely that a lawsuit is even going to come about um, than uh, than a typical brokerage scenario. Sure. And I think what you're alluding to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is, you know, this big concept around fiduciary duty versus suitability and the difference between somebody that's acting as an independent advisor versus somebody that is, you know, involved in transactional business. And there was for a long time, a thought that that was a major selling point within the RIA space and the RIA community. And since it's become more prevalent or that knowledge has become more prevalent, there's now a kind of a counter feeling that it's not just enough to be independent and a fiduciary, that similar aspects of business building, like in niche, Michael Kitts has talked about this recently, is important for developing your business. And then the last aspect is a lot of times I think advisors that were operating in an environment um, where suitability was the standard, their clients believe that they're acting as a fiduciary anyways. Like if you're not acting in the best interest of your clients, then you're probably not going to have a lot of clients in, in, in any way, shape or form. The point is I think there's still some level of confusion around when you leave a traditional financial institution, you start your own business, and you maintain your licenses as a registered representative with a broker-dealer, and the majority of your business that you're doing is on the advisory side, 
what what is a hybrid RIA and how does someone understand when they're acting as a fiduciary versus acting as someone from a suitability standard? How can they explain that clearly to their clients? Well, the answer to that last question is I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, So (laughs) let's unpack that a little bit, right? So the the hybrid practice is one uh, where the advisor – uh, continues to offer their services for a fee. Typically, it's a fee based upon assets under management. Sure. Uh, and th- those are their investment advisory services. But they also don't feel comfortable, maybe yet or ever, in walking away from the commissionable broker-dealer model, right? One where maybe they're selling uh, variable annuities, perhaps there's uh, there's some 529 plans that they're servicing. And if there's enough business, it may give rise to a reason for them to continue to maintain their registration, as registered reps of a broker-dealer. Right. In that type of situation, they are essentially wearing two hats, right? And under one hat, uh, today, they they, all, uh, they have an obligation to offer suitable products uh, to their clients as, as a registered rep of a broker-dealer. Under another, they have a fiduciary obligation to their clients. Um, as we go forward under Reg BI, um, those two are going to be very difficult for consumers to discern. Right. Um, two things happen simultaneously. And I think that trying to explain them to clients is going to be, be an uphill battle uh, at best. Uh, first, uh, the, uh, the new regs uh, essentially mask the suitability rule by calling it a best interest standard. Yeah. So now uh, when you have an investment advisor who says, well, I have a fiduciary obligation, and the client says, well, what does that mean? He says, oh, it means I have an obligation to act in your best interest. He says, oh, so that's the same as my broker because he's got a best interest standard. Right. Right. So, you know, it was pretty tricky that they extrapolated the two most significant words that define the fiduciary duty. And they now call that uh, the, you know, the, the brokerage. Uh, the, that's what they call sure. the brokerage standard of care. On the flip side, for investment advisors, the uh, it was generally believed that uh, – as a fiduciary, uh, an investment advisor had an obligation to put the interests of its clients ahead of its own. Right. Uh, now, not so much. Now, even though it's very slight, uh, the SEC made it very clear that uh, as, a fidu- as an SEC registered advisor and a fiduciary to their clients, they have an obligation to, uh, to not put their own interests ahead of their clients. Right. You know, we, we look at baseball where the tie goes to the runner. So, I guess I guess it's not very different from what was uh, in place before, but the SEC has now been uh, really clear about the two standards. I don't think consumers are going to have the tolerance or the interest in really understanding the nuances uh, between the two. Right, and, and it's a that point is incredibly critical, particularly for where our industry should be moving, from my opinion, which is. It seems very elementary. If you have two products and they provide very similar outcomes for a client and product A costs X and product B costs X plus, one would assume, whether it's best interest or fiduciary standard, that the first product would be better because it's achieving a similar result as the second and it's cheaper for the consumer. And I think there's been a way in which that's somehow been lost. Like the ultimate goal from a compliance perspective should be to create systems that protect the end consumer 
while at the same time allows a financial advisor in whatever way, shape, or form they wish to serve their clients a way to understand the risks associated with their decision-making. Fair. However, uh, things aren't always as clear, <laughs> right? right? right. And, and, and certainly it's become clearer over time. So as we've gotten to um, uh, as we've gotten to, let's say, funds that are passive yes. in nature and they can be compared one to the other without taking – well, taking out the delta of the active manager, right, which active manager is better, which can achieve better returns over time, right. which is more experienced. So by taking that out, you can compare apples to apples at that point. You can look at that S&P fund versus the other S&P fund and decide uh, quantitatively which one the advisor should have – purchased. And so that's been a great tool uh, in the arsenal for the SEC because when they look back, of course, with 2020 hindsight and they say, well, you you bought this fund with a 1% expense ratio, but we've got this fund out there that's got a 10 basis point expense ratio. Right. You know, explain yourself. Now, <laughs> that's hard, right? right? But it's harder when there's a conflict of interest, sure, right? And in a typical conflict of interest like that would be where the 1% fund uh, was uh, was paying off a 12B1 fee right. that the advisor was somehow sharing in, right? So now we've created a conflict of interest. We've created a reason why the advisor would go out and buy that 1% expense ratio fund as opposed to the 10 basis point fund because it meant that they were making more money even to the detriment of their client's interest. Right. So in that scenario, it's really, really clear. In most other scenarios, it's not nearly as clear. Sure. Um, so I'll give you I'll give you one that uh, you know that's come up recently. Uh, what about a scenario where, similar to what we're talking about now, uh, the client uh, the client gets rebated back those twelve B one fees? Yeah. Well, so now it's hard to say that the advisor had a real clear conflict of interest uh, because they weren't making any more money. In fact, they're probably giving themselves a bit of an accounting headache by having to capture the twelve B one fees and rebate them back to the client. Right. Um, but the SEC could also argue that they were probably getting some type of marketing gain by having this scheme in place. Sure. The scheme sounds bad, but it's really not intended to be bad. Not in my world. Um, and and so that uh, that arrangement meant that clients were paying a higher expense ratio, but net of fees may be only marginally so. Right. And so nonetheless, you know, we're still dealing with um, uh, with enforcement actions where the SEC is targeting those funds, sure. uh, those firms, uh, for engaging in those activities. Right. SEC enforcement has really ramped up uh, over the last several years. They've taken uh, they've taken a page from FINRA, right. and they've moved from examination to enforcement uh, very quickly. And while it's not the norm uh, in the space, it uh, it's we've certainly seen an uptick in the velocity that matters take when they're flag during an examination, how quickly they make their way over to the enforcement staff. Right. I think just based on, and I have far, far less experience in, in these matters um, compared to you, obviously, but one of the things that's interesting to me is when a an advisor leaves and starts a, a new business, becomes an entrepreneur, and then really starts to think about the business as something different than what it was where they were previously. And so one example that I'd give, and I, I think that the SEC is, has definitely taken a look at this, is when someone leaves and then starts to run investment products 
as part of their overall business structure. More specifically, the advisor is running separately managed accounts for their own clients. The advisor is engaged in private equity or unique alternative investments for their clients. So, you know, from your perspective, there there clearly could be a conflict, number one. It would be hard to to talk that one away, but what are the steps that's, that an individual who's interested in running funds, uh, running separately managed accounts under the same umbrella or same structure as a, an RIA, what are the steps that they should take to, to safely set up their business so they're not um, going to handle a ton of scrutiny? And if they do handle scrutiny, they have a defensible position. So um, it's a tough one. Yeah. Um, and it is being done by more and more uh, investment advisors. And I think um, I think there's an immediate image of what an investment advisor has in their mind when they're looking to go and create their own firm. And there's often a, an awful lot of bells and whistles. <laughs> right. You've seen it. Yeah. Right. And I shiny think, object syndrome. Absolutely. Let's and our go. job is to ensure <laughs> that um, that it becomes a measured process. Yeah. Right. That we say, OK, let's table that for year two or year three. Like, let's get to that when it's necessary. Let's work first on transitioning the business to what you have in place now, and then let's start adding the features because with each one of these features does come conflicts of interest and sure. also carries with it complexities. Right. And by the way, conflicts of interest are not uh, are not a problem in the sense of that someone's a thief or someone's doing something wrong. A conflict of interest is merely a moral problem. Sure. Right. And a disclosure you, item. Yeah. And, and you want to think of it as a problem like a math problem, right, or a coding problem where all we're saying is that it requires a solution on the other side. And so when there's a conflict of interest, it just means that – and there's no such thing, by the way, as a potential conflict of interest, right? So <laughs> there's either a conflict of interest or there's not a conflict Black of interest. Black and white on that one, right. Yeah. right. And so when there is a conflict of interest, uh, the advisor has uh, a couple of really clear decisions to make. They can get rid of the practice, right? So they could say, you know what? I don't want that conflict of interest. I think my client's – I think we're going to be compromised my client's trust by having that disclosure that would be required here. So I don't want it. We're not going to run the funds uh, under, yep. under our firm. No problem. Conflict goes away. The other scenario is that you disclose the conflict of interest. And by disclosing the conflict of interest, you're describing to clients how they're impacted by the conflict, what the firm's done to mitigate uh, the conflict, and what they should be wary of. And it's really only because advisors are placed in this position of trust that they have to disclose these conflicts of interest. What the law effectively says is that you can trust this guy unequivocally except for the scenarios that he's described here in this document. Sure. Right. So aside from this, the interests of the advisor should be aligned with the client. But when you are perhaps uh, peddling a, uh, an affiliated fund – Right where you may make recommendations that clients invest in that fund, well, that's a conflict. Right. Right. And so, then, uh, and then when they go ahead and invest in that fund, and you earn additional fees, uh, there's a conflict. And so, all along the way, we've got to disclose those conflicts of interest. Not to mention ensure that the fund is properly set up and that you've made all of your uh, appropriate securities filings. Um, and so, we, um, you know, we really just need to make sure that we're able to take a full inventory over everything that the advisor wants to do, both now and then as we look into the future. And we need to make sure that all of that is considered and uh, and and disclosed. Sure. 
uh, as uh, as needs to be, as it needs to be. And I think, I mean, that theme should be something that an advisor or candidly any business owner, it doesn't matter the industry, should be thinking about as they structure their operations, which is here's the way in which we're going to derive revenue today, year one problem. As we move into or year one scenario, forget about the word problem. As we move into the future, we would like to potentially have the option to increase other lines of revenue. And here's the way in which we're going to do it. And then be able to have a conversation with people on many fronts on the operational front. What does what are the implications of the decision that you're making mean from a human capital perspective, from a technology perspective? But what's so great about the independent space, just to kind of crystallize what you said, is as long as you're disclosing what it is that you're doing fully to your client, there is a ton of flexibility in what you can do. You are no longer captive to being managed to the lowest common denominator. Like, by the way, that's not a bad thing. Like, in large institutions, you need to protect the consumer, and you have no idea theoretically, of the relative level of skill and acumen of every single employee that you have. So you have to do that, right? Absolutely. But in the independent space, that's not always the case. You know what you what your team can do. You should know what your team can do. You should know what you can do. And then you should work with people, particularly on the compliance side, to be able to disclose what it is and be very clear to your clients. Do you agree with that? Is that but Mostly. Is that the- I mean, so... It's so probably not for all businesses, right? The car dealer doesn't have to worry about disclosure. Sure. Right. They don't want to tell you what's in the documentation <laughs> fee or the delivery fee. They just want to, you know, get the best deal they can. Right. But that should be clear, right? No one's going to the car dealer saying, well, they're aligned with my interests. They right. know that they're sitting on the other side of the desk and that this person is trying to sell for the maximum profit. Yep. And you're trying to buy it for the cheapest price so you can pay for it. Sure. And so that's a, you know, that's an interaction where, um, trust is not necessarily associated with uh, with that relationship normally, but with, uh, with in a trusted relationship uh, such as what we're talking about here, I, I totally agree and think that advisors need to start to um, uh, I guess fo- increase their focus and distinguish between regulatory compliance and risk management. Yeah. Because within a within a large firm, if if I'm running that firm, I'm I'm doing exactly what these firms do today, which is I have to manage to the lowest common denominator. Sure. I have to make sure that rep number nine thousand four hundred and thirty five doesn't rip off that client that he's going to meet with tonight. Yeah. Um, because that rep could significantly hurt the business of all the other people doing good work within the firm. And so you you put in place risk management controls. They often have nothing to do with regulatory compliance. They have to do with protecting the firm. Uh, but, you know, everyone looks at regulatory compliance like you wait till your daddy comes home. Right? <laughs> right. And, so, and so you're, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your branch manager saying, you know, well, you need to fill out these forms. And you're saying, well, why do I have to fill out the forms? Not compliance. Right. Right. So compliance kind of has this illusion that. You have federal securities regulators who, if you don't fill out that form, are somehow going to ding your firm. Right. Right. That's just not the case at all. Right. Sure. I mean, the so the firm has its risk measurement uh, measures, uh, and then it has its regulatory compliance measures. And so, but for a small firm, regulatory compliance takes on, as you met, as you alluded to, a whole different meaning. Right. And you don't have to manage to the lowest common denominator. You can put in place a regulatory compliance program that allows the firm to meet its obligations to comply with the regulations 
um, all the time. Right. So for us, regulatory compliance has been a baseline operational standard. You know, we say, well, stop thinking about it like a compliance department sure. or, a, or a person at the firm that, that handles this. Let's start thinking about this in terms of this is everyone's problem. Yeah. And so let's put it, put it as the baseline standard of operations under which we can't ever, we can't ever go. So when we talk about marketing, well, there's got to be a regulatory compliance baseline standard there. When we talk about trading, same thing. When we right. talk about the firm's governance and books and records, all of them should carry with it the same standard that says we may do a lot of wild and crazy things, but we're never dipping below regulatory compliance. Right. Like that's just um, – we can achieve higher standards, but that's the lowest standard that's acceptable right. here. And so by doing that and by the firm really spending time to customize their policies and procedures – uh, and train their staff on those policies and procedures. I think they can do uh, a great job of ensuring that the regulatory compliance uh, program fits the firm that they've envisioned. Right. And I agree 100 percent. It's about establishing a culture of compliance. And for some reason, I think there's this, <clears throat> rightly or wrongly so, view that compliance is that quarterly meeting where everyone sits in a conference room and someone gets up with a PowerPoint slide, the the chief compliance officer, you know, and, and people have some sort of feeling that it's either a waste of time or they don't like it or someone's trying to hamper them from doing what they need to be doing. As leaders, especially when you're starting a new business and you're leaving a traditional financial institution, your behavior and your approach towards empowering people within your organization, particularly your CCO, to actually have a meaningful role within the organization, not to be seen as someone that's hampering business, but someone that's setting the standards, which is exactly what you want to do. It's setting the standard for trading, not because you're trying to make it more difficult for somebody, but because you need standards in anything. And when you look at the way in which something should be done, it should be done to excellence from an operational standpoint, but also excellence from a compliance standpoint, because at the end of the day, if for whatever reason you don't, and you run into major issues, and FINRA or the SEC comes in and says, we're shutting you down, nobody wins in that situation. Everybody loses because you no longer have a business anymore. Yeah, but don't you think that part of, so I, I agree that a lot of brokers leaving large firms uh, look at that quarterly meeting has compliance, <laughs> yeah. right? Or or the continuing ed that they have to do as uh, as compliance, um, and that's that's not the case at all. Um, but don't you think that a lot of um, the change that happens on the independent space in the independent space is because uh, not only are advisors more aligned with their clients, but advisors are also more aligned with their service providers. Sure, right. So at a big firm, you know, I submit. A piece of advertising, and they just say no, right? <laughs> right, right, like, right. They don't say like, "Oh, fix line three. If you can, you know, if you can soften up this paragraph, right. let's not, you know, reference this. And here's some disclosure, and you should be good to go." Sure. They just say no, right? Right. And so, uh, advisors have this perception that compliance is the business prevention department, right? But when you hire your compliance consultant, right, that means you can also fire your compliance consultant. That means that they are inclined to do whatever they can to ensure that you can achieve your business objectives while simultaneously maintaining regulatory compliance. And that's where regulatory compliance works right? Um, and shouldn't hinder or hamper business. It should be seen as 
this is the playing field. These are the rules that we all need to abide by to ensure that everyone's advertising, you know, fits at least this standard or, or that, you know, the industry's reputation it remains uh, strong right. and becomes even stronger over time. Uh, regulatory compliance is simply having the rules of the road. Sure. Yeah. That really, really good point. I want to change gears for a second and probably ask a question that people that, that are not yet independent may be asking, <clears throat> which is when you think about advisors that are transitioning from a, from a traditional financial institution to independence, what are just some of the common mistakes that they make? Where do they run into problem from a transition perspective with compliance? Well, let's see. I mean, they, 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 they do make a, a few of them, uh, but uh, it really depends on the team. Um, some, some teams make all of them. <laughs> so you'll, you'll see that the most successful teams are the ones that are measured and deliberate. They've got a vision uh, and they go about uh, figuring out what they need to do in order to achieve uh, that vision. And they're not guided by emotions, even though this is a highly emotional uh, process. Sure. Uh, biggest mistake that teams makers fear or, or self-doubt. Uh, the founders simply uh, don't know what they don't know. It's unfamiliar territory. Um, they don't know who to trust. They don't know who to turn to. They hear a lot of information, some of it conflicting. Um, it often leads to paralysis in that uh, decision-making, but there is a remedy, right? right? And the remedy there is is education because with education, the advisors start to learn for themselves uh, what's real, you know, who's selling them something, uh, who they can begin to trust and rely upon. And this is a, a somewhat, while we look at it as a simple process because we've done it right. so many times before, from their perspective, this is a daunting process. There's so many moving parts. And so they need a team around them that they can trust. Um, you know, advisors uh, that I speak to often aren't confused about whether they want to go independent or not. They, they're pretty confident about that right at the outset. Where they're getting jammed up, and they weren't jammed up on this 10 years ago, is what the flavor of independence is sure. uh, for them. So, you know, pardon the, the, the detour, but, you know, this is where I get more questions than anything else. And, you know, at, at the end, uh, you've, got, uh, uh, you've got those that are intrigued by independence uh, but could do without all the work that goes with it. Sure. Right? And they may not be drawn to the enter by the enterprise value. They may be focused more on the lifestyle decision. And we're going to see those guys, if they make the right decision, they're going to join other existing firms. Yep. Right? That's the right decision for them. They don't – just because business ownership is the destination for many doesn't mean it's the destination for all. Uh, at the next level is, is something I call uh, supported independence, where advisors can narrow their universe of choice by going out and seeking support uh, from other advisors – and they're going to package the myriad of service providers that an independent advisor needs to choose. Now, advisors need to keep in mind that using this, it makes it a lot easier, but they're going to compromise on choice. Um, they'll gain some battle-tested and uh, integrated technology. They'll gain a support overlay, but they won't be able to do everything they wanted and anything they wanted. They'll, right. they'll be, there'll be a li somewhat limited menu. And then, of course, it's what we all read about, which is the build-it-yourself. And it offers great flexibility uh, it's ideal for the tinker, the geek, you know, the guy like me, uh, someone who just relishes in the detail. Like, I want to know how things work. I want to take things apart and rebuild the business process uh, from scratch. And not everyone's like that, I've come to learn. Uh, I'm, you know, 
I'm mad about how things work, and I always feel that if we're not innovating and creating new stuff, then we're we're dying. But uh, I used to think everyone was like that, and I've come to learn that that's that, that that's a bit different. Um, that I'm a little bit different, but but that's okay. I've been also told. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I so. Uh, so at the other end, but equally problematic, aside from the guys that have fear, are this overconfidence, this this false sense of familiarity or uh, or confidence. You know, they we see like a rush to formation, early decisions that they make, which may have outsized ramifications later on. But it's like, let's do it fast. Right. right? Let's, uh, you know, let's uh, let's not really think about business risk uh, the same way we look at investment risk for our clients. Well, why wouldn't you? Right. I mean, this is going to be your largest holding. Like we should be analyzing this in very much the, the same manner that you're you're used to. Uh, we'll uh, we'll see different stakeholders involved in the uh, in the decision running at different speeds. Uh, you know, the remedy here is not education. The remedy here is a methodical process. It's sure. kind of bolting the, these, this team onto a track and saying, this is how we're going to go about doing this. Uh, it's putting that vision down in a document. It's uh, expanding the concept of team to take on some outside service providers that can help them achieve that. And then it's, it's helping them work methodically towards their objectives. And sharing with them all along the way some of the complexities that they probably didn't see uh, from uh, from so high high up. Uh, part of the problem that we find with these overconfident teams is they're also oversharers. You know, they uh, they're so excited right. about the move that they want to tell everybody. Uh, and believe it or not, everyone's not rooting for them. Sure. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's exciting. It's a scary time. We tell them over and over again on our first call that this team needs to be as tight as it possibly can be in order to achieve our objectives. Um, and so it's going to feel unnatural. It's going to feel strange. I know you want to tell your assistant everything. Uh, I know you may have uh, another advisor that you have a very close relationship with. And there will be a time and place where you can explain to them everything that happened and the sequence of events and why you couldn't tell them up until now. But you really need to protect the integrity of the project. Um, you can't compromise it just because it feels good to tell somebody else. Uh, you can get a therapist for that if you want. Uh, but you really need to abide by that. I mean, more project failures have come as a result of people peripheral to the team revealing information that compromised the integrity of the project than any other reason. It's the number one reason that we have project failure. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all those points. Oh, but well, hold on. There's there's actually one more. And it's probably the most difficult one to quantify, uh, but it's, it's almost universal. Uh, so after every, uh, every firm graduates from our incubator program, we go out and do an after-action review. Uh, and we'll ask them if you knew then what you knew now, uh, what would you do differently? And over 95% of those that respond to that question say the same exact thing. And I'll bet you could guess what they say. No idea. They say, I wish I had done it sooner. <laughs> that was a layup. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's, uh, and it's, so it's so difficult to quantify, well, how much sooner do you wish you'd done it? And were you prepared and would it have been as successful? Uh, but it's an almost universal sentiment to everyone that crosses the threshold to independence, which is, I wish I would have done this sooner. And so if we know that delay is far and away the most common problem, um, then it would it really surprises me 
that so many know that that's the destination and despite that, continue to sit in their corner office uh, and say, well, I'll get to that at some point. Sure. I mean, we're human beings, all of us, financial advisors as well. And we we try at at times to quantify what a a delay would look like. Here's what your net effective payout is at your current institution. Here's what it would be as an independent once you're up and running. Here's the enterprise value that you're bringing. Obviously, to individuals that enjoy the quantitative aspect of a discussion, that may resonate with them. I also think that it's not think it as you said it's an incredibly emotional decision. This this is oftentimes or always people's life's work and sometimes they've been at the same institution for 20 or 30 years and so to make a decision to move from something that's very familiar into something that's the great unknown for a lot of them that's that's incredibly frightening. And even to your point earlier about the two flavors of advisors, the ones that are just fearful and that paralyzes and they won't make them a decision to the ones that are over aggressive and feel as if they gut it all. I I look at those people with the same view, like they're scared too. They just don't want to admit it. So (laughs) the way in which they operate with that fear is just pretending or showing the sense of bravado and the reality is if anyone's is listening, the best place to be in is just right in the middle, right in the middle. Just say, look, I don't know everything, but I want to learn. I want to do this. This is the right place for me to be. And I need to find some people that I can trust to help guide me there. And that's what you do really well is getting them to trust you and then providing them with that guidance, which is incredibly critical to individuals along this journey. So, so thank you. And I will tell you that that's uh, that I can empathize, and I and I, I think that one of my chief roles within my firm is to ensure that every one of uh, every one of the market counselors can empathize. Sure. Uh, every time that we get on the phone, instead of having that lawyer who's sitting at a big firm who just looks at this as another billable hour, you know, they'll hear me in meetings at least once a week say, "Just think about what this team is going through right now." Right. Tomorrow they are walking into their office that they've worked at for 20 plus years. Yep. They're they're going to walk past friends, people they've dined with, people they've golfed with, people that have been at their house. Sure. And they're going to be uh, sitting there for the duration of that day. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they're going to be handing in a resignation letter to someone that they probably embraced, uh, you know, at some point in the weeks prior. Sure. Uh, this is a. This is an emotional journey, and for anyone that suggests otherwise, uh, they, they're lying, right, or they just simply don't get it. So the answer is definitely right in the middle. It's, it's This is more complex than some people think it is, and it's easier than other people think it is. Right. Um, we've, uh, we have to continue to uh, empathize with the journey that these advisors are going on, uh, that even though in hindsight they say, well, I wish I would have done it sooner, even though in hindsight those client conversations are always far easier than they thought they would ever uh, be, at the moment when they're looking ahead at this, it looks really daunting. Yep. I mean, I remember I left my I left my law firm after being there for a pretty short period of time, uh, less than two years, uh, and I left a, a large firm. When I decided to leave, my daughter had just been born. When I actually left, my daughter was 
uh, six months old. Mm -hmm. So when I look at my companies, uh, and they're almost 20, and my daughter's almost 20, I, I can kind of <laughs> see the human embodiment yeah. of of my companies. But you know, it was it was scary. But for me, I fit into the probably overconfident bucket okay. more than the fearful bucket. And if I would have waited longer, I would have probably moved more towards that fearful bucket. It was just that I had the right guy at the right time in my ear saying, why are you going to stay there for another three years? Right. If you have this vision now and you have all the tools and resources now to go out and get it, what is the next three years going to bring you other than yeah. delay? And, and to your point, you always hear it. Uh, we've got a $50 million prospect that's coming on in a month and we can't leave because that person's not, or, you know, so-and-so has something going on in their life. Look, I, f life is life. So if there is, you know, significant personal issues that are going on, obviously that's not a good time to make a huge life move from a business perspective. I'm not saying that, but I also have heard just about every excuse as to why someone would. And it comes back to that philosophy that we we're talking about earlier about fear. The reality is you're not going to get over fear. Yesterday, we had a great conversation around the difference between fear and courage. Fear is fear. Courage is just the ability to get over fear. If you think that people that do courageous acts in that moment in time weren't feeling fear, if they had any time to think about it, you're crazy. So you're absolutely nuts. That's insane. You're, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. I mean, everyone's scared. Right. Right. There's not a person that is, you know, you, you, you talk to these, uh, these guys who become famed fighter pilots. Sure. And if any of them are being honest with you, they're going to tell you that, the first time they stepped in, they, they you know, they were petrified, yep. right? And they may even be scared each and every time they do it. Uh, when I speak to people who are regular public speakers, it, they, they weren't born that way, <laughs> right? And as humans, like, we, we want to look at other yeah. people and say, well, they're different than us. And they're absolutely not different right. whatsoever. They're the same exact people. It's just when faced with this scenario, they've chosen to take the step forward. Right. As opposed to that step back, yeah, and uh, and that step forward is gut wrenching sometimes. Sure, but it passes. Yeah, right. And if you're surrounding yourself with the right people and the right team, uh, and you've got trusted advisors, and you you really feel you you quickly gain a sense of confidence, and the momentum starts to take over, and you become the courageous one. Right. Right. You 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 just move yourself from one category to another sure. because everyone's scared. And so what do you do in response to that fear? Yeah. I think it's fascinating. It, it, it is. I mean, one of the, the first, if not the second conversation I have with people when they're thinking about independence and candidly, obviously becoming a client of Dynasty is just one to interpret whether or not they want to be an entrepreneur. I've said that a bunch. But, but the second is just to throw something in their face, which is, look, you've got a myriad of different decisions that you can make. We all know you could take a check and go to another financial institution. Um, perhaps you could go to other places that will give you a higher payout, higher cash flow, money in your pocket, et cetera. But if you're waffling between options, 
my advice to you is rip the Band-Aid off. Be an independent advisor. Be an entrepreneur. Own your own equity if you're ready for that. And you said it earlier. There are some people that you know right from the get-go. They're just not going to be able to handle that responsibility because it's a huge responsibility. But if you can, what are we talking about? Why do you care about a 5 or 10% increase in net payout? Like, do it yourself. Bet on yourself. Bet on your ability to grow equity versus being a part of something else. And I know that might be a controversial or like not everyone's going to agree with me, but what do you think about that 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 question or that philosophy? The move to independence is um, one of the most amazing phenomenons that I've ever come across. Mm-hmm. And it's why I've dedicated my life's work to, to this area. To be able to, in one move... Uh, simultaneously align your interests with that of your clients whom you care for and you're concerned for. Uh, And at the same time, be able to take autonomy and control uh, over the relationship that you have with your employees. Uh, And then, as if that wasn't good enough, be able to convert this book of business, which basically wasn't anything of value to you before the day you moved, and on the very day after you move, it, it's become a multi-million dollar asset, something that you can, uh, that you can offer uh, shares of, incremental shares of to your employees, something that you can later bestow upon your estate, uh, something that you can sell as if you could sell any other investment within your portfolio. Right. It just happens to now be your biggest investment. That's amazing, right? <laughs> that you can do all of those things simultaneously. And the trade-off for that is that after 20, 30 years of building a, a really successful career, and let's face it, having it pretty easy at that juncture of your career, you're going back to work. Right. Right? You're going back to work, and you're going to spend the next several years working harder than you've worked since you were brand new in this industry. Sure. Um, and your clients will love you for it. Your employees will love you for it. Your family will love you for it. But there's a process and there's a journey. And, uh, you know, when we talk about fear and we talk about courage, uh, it's a courageous step. And we, you know, we, even though it certainly appears by all markers to be the promised land, right? I mean, there's not a financial advisor I speak to who says, wirehouses are the wave of the future, right? Right. They're not going away anytime soon. Sure. Let's not underestimate their yeah. capabilities. Of course. But, you know, everyone seems to uh, re- revolve around this uh, common belief that independence is over time going to Trump, right? That consu- the alignment of the consumer interests over time is just too strong of a force for any global enterprise to combat. Over time, consumers as a whole will vote with their dollars and independent advisors will continue to win out time and time again. But that amount of courage to get there um, is um, is just awe-inspiring. Yeah. And the cool thing is we get to see it like every day. All the time. All the time. <laughs> so I'm going to close with uh, two things. First, I'll tell a story. You probably know where the story is going. But I have no idea. No idea. Five or six years ago, I think it was six, actually, 4th of July. Uh, Brian (laughs) and I were a part of an expedition uh, on a boat on the Hudson River, and we thought that that was an ideal spot to watch the 4th of July uh, fireworks that were going to be shot over New York City. I I mean, candidly, I I think it 
I don't know why more people weren't out there. The reason, actually, that more people weren't out there is that it is completely illegal to be in the Hudson River on the 4th of July. And so our boat was... Um, was joined by a Coast Guard, uh, which was filled with very large human beings, very intimidating, even for me. Not that I'm intimidated. Big guns on the back. Big, big guns. Big guns, big arms, and we were summarily dismissed from the Hudson River. Now, our, our boat driver at the time, I would say, was less skilled nautically than Brian, but in a, uh, a short period of time, he was able to... Uh, for what I could best explain, parallel park a boat <laughs> with moving water uh, on the Upper West Side. So it was an amazing experience, one that I will not forget. And uh, similar to what we're talking about, courage and uh, courage under fire, there was no stress in your face as you backed that boat in, although I'm pretty sure you felt some of that as you were trying to get it between <laughs> very, very expensive boats. So that's story number one. Uh, story number two, a little bit more personal. You may or may not remember this. Um, I was going through some pretty difficult things in my life personally back in our old office uh, at 1350 in New York City. And you came over to me and you just uh, said that if there's anything that you could do to help me, um, that you would do that. And so for me, it's those small moments in life that maybe if you're on the other end of those moments, you don't really recognize how impactful uh, that can be, but that was incredibly impactful for me and something that I won't forget and I think about often. So I want to thank you for that again. I don't think I've ever thanked you to your face for that moment, but that was well, very, thanks. very meaningful for me. Well, thanks. And, and really, it needs no thanks. I mean, I think that um, it's important as you go through your career, you're going you're gonna to meet people and uh, you're going to meet people that can do cool things for you. They can share a lot of information from you. But at the end of the day, they're, they're people, sure. right? And we, uh, and we often work um, 12 to 18-hour days sometimes, and it's easy to forget under the fluorescent lights that there are people that go home and they've got all sorts of challenges. And, um, you know, we, we've gone through trials and tribulations in our life, and you, I think the, the way you build bonds among people is to appreciate them as, uh, as people uh, because once you – once you have that level of trust and familiarity, right. you can go months without speaking to them, and then you see them, and it's as if no time's passed, yep. right? And so, uh, and, and I feel that way, and uh, about about you, and um, we really have uh, have been able to work within our existing organizations, sure, and uh, and I think accomplish some really cool stuff together. I agree. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having us. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Powering Independence podcast. I also want to thank Brian Hamburger uh, for spending some time with me in the studio here. A very insightful conversation that I enjoyed very much. And to all you listeners, please stay tuned as we will be sending out another podcast in the near future.